1: Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates.
4: Award-winning author Richard Flanagan released his latest book, Toxic, shortly before the recent Tasmanian election. It's an investigation of the salmon farming industry, documenting worrying impacts on the Tasmanian marine environment. Flanagan looks at everything from the pollution caused by salmon farming to the problems of fish feed to lack of regulation. For those of us now perhaps looking for alternatives to farmed salmon, where can we turn to? The Australian Marine Conservation Society publishes a good fish guide to Australian fish, which uses a traffic light system to rate Australian seafood. In the guide, Atlantic salmon farmed in Tasmania are given a red rating as a fish we should say no to. To find out more, I spoke to Adrian Meader from the society. All right, Adrian, so the Marine Conservation Society's good fish guide, farmed Atlantic salmon, is listed as a fish that we should say no to. Can you tell us a bit about why we should say no to farmed Atlantic salmon? Yeah, James. Well, I mean, it's
5: difficult to know where to start these days. Um, and, uh, you know, off the back of uh, Richard Flanagan's uh, book that's come out lately, I mean, the fact that this this is the only fish farming industry I'm aware of that has had a book written about it's... So, uh, sins, environmental and otherwise, and that probably, um, uh, you know, is, a, is an indicator. Uh, but look, you know, where to start? So, uh, if we're looking at, um, about five years ago, um, a, a, a poorly regulated expansion of the industry into just an incredibly special and sensitive environmental area, uh, Macquarie Harbour on Tasmania's west coast. And we saw some really serious damage done to, to that area, which is, it's a World Heritage area, its environmental issues are uh, incredibly significant, and, you know, it's home to the only known population of, of an ancient and precious species of ray called the Morgian Skate, uh, the sort of place we should be looking after. Uh, unfortunately, the, the industry was implicated in creating massive dead zones in that harbour where... There was so much fish poo going into the water that essentially sucked the oxygen out of the deeper waters and, and basically killed everything on the seabed. Uh, fast forward a few years, and, and right now we're seeing another massive expansion of the industry into a place called Storm Bay on Tasmania's southeast coast. Now, this has just been massively controversial. Uh, and, and if the industry's plans are completed, this could lead to the equivalent amount of pollution of all of Victoria's ocean waste outfall. As you know, there's still some sewage waste or outfalls going out into the ocean in Australia. But all of that going into just one bay, um, you know, that is a very high-impact operation. Can it be handled uh, environmentally and managed well? Look, the signs are anything but promising. Mm. Um, uh, and look, I could go on. We've we've had over a million salmon dead from diseases caused by too much farming. We're hearing of regular escapes into the wild of uh, of uh, fish that have escaped their cages. Unsurprisingly, in Storm Bay, uh, storms come through and have uh, damaged the farming infrastructure. Uh, we've got mistreatment of wildlife. Uh, we've had seals trucked over land in their thousands um, to try and get rid of them and shift them somewhere else in Tasmania uh, and we're now hearing uh, of industry using thousands of what are called seal bombs or, or, or crackers uh, which are essentially explosives designed to scare off seals and and, and these things are getting shot with what's essentially right control gear. Now uh, this is all happening because the Tasmanian government has really failed to regulate that industry. It seems to just get what it wants. And, uh, and you know, where industry and government don't seem to be that interested in being more careful, um, if there is an opportunity in all of that, it's that consumers can can take a bit of control and use their market power. And, and I guess that's where our seafood guide advice comes in.
4: I'm curious um, whether it's possible for an industry like this to be sustainable. I mean, farm fish, this this particular industry, the Tasmanian salmon industry, does feed off Tasmania's clean green image. Is it possible to have sustainable farm salmon that something like the Good Fish Guide would say is a good alternative?
5: Absolutely. And and in fact, uh, we have some. Uh, not assessed by us but by our respected peers the the New Zealand uh, salmon farming industry which farms a different species but does so in a a fairly similar manner um, is rated by that system which which we've adopted their rating uh, on their green list Um, because essentially there's a degree of moderation Um, they haven't taken every opportunity to expand at the cost of the environment and just because the fish are being found in an area uh, that 's more suited to them uh, it 's able to be done uh, more efficiently so there 's absolutely um, the potential yeah. and, and the reality of sustainable uh, salmon farming and look internationally what we 're really seeing is is a transition, um, just like the change from sort of fossil fuel to renewable energy we 're seeing a transition from uh, farming salmon in the ocean to farming them on land and tanks where a lot of these environmental issues, particularly the pollution and the, and the chemicals related to disease management, um, are massively reduced and far better controlled.
4: Mm-hmm. If I do want to eat Australian salmon, though, is there an alternative, or well, salmon caught or farmed in, in Australia, is there an alternative that I can look for?
5: Yeah, well... The challenge here is that salmon is so ubiquitous, and as a result, and as a result of some marketing of it as such a premium product, um, we've seen a real narrowing of consumer tastes. So, look, salmon's a boneless fillet. It's pretty tough to overcook it. Uh, You can find it everywhere, and it's not the most expensive option. But, you know, this isn't actually how we used to eat our seafood uh, that long ago, particularly in a diverse um, community like Melbourne. Where we would have a more diverse taste, we'd eat more of what is caught, and spread our pressure on the ocean uh, more broadly. So we can look to a whole range of species that are caught in Victoria that don't have the prominence they used to, perhaps. And uh, and these are species that are, are caught locally. Uh, they're pretty cheap because they're not in demand, and uh, and they're not under nearly so much pressure. So. That could be species like, uh, tailor, mullet or brim caught in, say, our corner inlet fishery. Um, slightly more premium sort of expensive offerings like garfish, whitings and snapper, uh, are fished pretty sustainably in Victoria. And then there's sort of old favorites like calamari as well. So, so there's actually a lot of options, but it's just with today's sort of retail environment can be trickier to find that local seafood. Mm.
4: And there is a wild Australian salmon that is a pretty good alternative as well. Is that right? There is. Now it's not actually a salmon. Right. Uh,
5: Australia, Australia has a history of giving fish very unfortunate names, but it got that salmon long before Atlantic salmon was being uh, uh, being farmed in Australia. It's not a salmon at all, but it sort of looks similar. But look, the good news is it's relatively. It's, it's actually what we would consider an underutilized fish these days, which. There's a sort of cold scientific term that means if we wanted to, we could catch more of them without, uh, without uh, damaging the health of the fishery. Now, these fish are pretty abundant. Um, we used to actually um, catch them and can them, and they were a really affordable staple for Australian families if you rewind 50 years or so. Uh, there are canneries right along the coast um, for these things. They're often caught off the beach or in... In, uh, sane nets, uh, out at sea or in our inlets in ways that don't have any serious impacts on, on other species because a sort of a whole school is caught at a time and there's not much else swimming around with it. Um, minimal damage to, to seabed habitats. And as I said, a healthy stock. So the, the contrast there, uh, look, do they have the culinary reputation? Uh, no, they don't. But, um, treated well, uh, they can be equally. Delicious And they can hold up to some more um, creative preparations, I suppose, and that they can uh, they can sit in a meal with some stronger bolder flavors and
4: hm mm. how interesting. I just want to pick up on something that you just kind of alluded to there uh, the types of fish that are uh, that make better choices. What are the characteristics of these types of fish? Are there a particular set of, you know, biological factors or habitat that they live in that make these better alternatives?
5: Yeah, okay. Well, there's sort, of, there's sort of two because we're talking farmed fish, which are an increasing part of our diet, and then wild fish, of course. And when we're looking at wild fish, we look at a number of areas, and we consider all of these things in our seafood guide, uh, which is firstly... Is the population of fish uh, healthy and not overexploited? Secondly, uh, what else is caught with that fish? You know, uh, is there, say, a protected species or an endangered species? Uh, obviously, we don't want that. Um, does the act of fishing, you know, the pulling of nets or the dropping of lines or traps, uh, damage uh, seabed and ecosystems in any way? And then, lastly, is the management of all of that? science-based and careful and able to respond if there is a problem. With fish farming, we look for a, a slightly different set, but uh, we're looking at the same broad environmental issues. We want to know that the fish itself being farmed grows really efficiently, because that means uh, typically that less wild fishery resources are required to, to grow uh, you know, a certain quantity of fish. Uh, there's no point taking perfectly good uh, edible and delicious seafood from somewhere else in the world, grinding it up and then turning it into a, a luxury farmed fish in a really inefficient way. Uh, we also want to know that wildlife isn't being put at risk by the farming activity. And likewise, we want to know that any pollution, any wasted fish food and fish poo that that uh, does enter the marine environment um, is at a level that the environment's actually able to absorb and, and deal with. And then, of course, we want to see that the management of all of that, and you know, something that we've seen sorely lacking in Tasmania, is responsible and careful and precautionary. Mm.
4: While I was making this show, I also published a review of Flanagan's book on my personal blog. Shortly after this, I was messaged on Facebook by a representative of Huon Aquaculture, which is one of the salmon businesses in Tasmania, saying they were keen to show me the facts about their farming operations so I could make up my own mind. From this contact, I let them know I was also making a show on the industry and asked for a response to the claims in Toxic and the Good Fish Guide. They directed me to fact sheets on their website and said that human aquaculture stopped translocating seals in 2016, and that they are confident that the Storm Bay ecosystem is not being impacted negatively by Huon's activities. They also said that many of the points made in Toxic and the Good Fish Guide are, quote, outdated and non-factual, unquote. When I put this back to Adrian, he said that the Good Fish Guide is reviewed every three years, which is in line with the best practice for these type of ratings. He also said that we still do not know the impacts of salmon farming in Macquarie Harbour on the Morgian Skate, and raise concerns about the expansion of the industry into Storm Bay. We're going to hear from more from Adrian right after the break. But first, we're going to hear a song. This is Maisha with Damaged.
0: job, without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment. I'm not getting a fair go, and I don't like it, and I'm saying so. You're listening
6: to 3CR, 855 on the AM
0: dial.
4: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And we just heard damaged by Maisha. I've been talking to Adrian Meter from the Australian Marine Conservation Society about the Good Fish Guide and how we can choose more sustainable seafood. How do you go about investigating the sustainability of seafood? I mean, is all this information actually out there?
5: Oh, look, that's, uh, that's the great challenge. And, and the good news for your listeners is that uh, I try and do all that so that, so that you don't have to. But, uh,
4: <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> uh,
5: our, our Good Fish Guide covers uh, over 90% of the seafood that's on the Australian market. So it's pretty broad. And doing that and assessing all of those issues uh, in a scientific fashion uh, that takes about 18 months and we've just actually started this year updating all of that so we try to uh, update all of those assessments there's about 160 of them uh, at present every three years or so and we're growing that all the time uh, it's a very rigorous process and it uses a whole lot of terms and words and language that is just really complex so we try to boil all of that down into something that uh, a seafood lover can can understand and cope with. And we also try and provide where, say, your favourite fish comes up and it's on our red list, um, some more sustainable alternatives as well.
4: Mm. Is, there, is there ever a problem in, in finding the data? Like do fisheries, for instance, do they collect the data that is needed to make good decisions about well, also the fisheries themselves, but also what we're eating?
5: Look, it's, it's almost always a great challenge. Mm. Um, the, the rule for managing the ocean sustainably, uh, because we, you know, we don't understand it that well, is to manage it for all the things we don't understand, just in case something goes wrong, rather than managing it. With this false sense of confidence based on the little pieces of data we do have, so it's my job to dig through all of those, and where information is uh, lacking, uh, it becomes my job to to make the uh, most careful uh, decision we can um, so so for those reasons, we tend to be very precautionary and take a take an ecological approach to To managing these things but look uh it can be a real black box the the seafood industry as a whole is not known for its transparency but um uh we work with what is out there and australia is actually relatively fortunate in that because australians uh love the ocean and because we have a, a deep connection to it um we consider it worthwhile that uh, our, our ocean management is very science based and relatively well resourced
4: i'm curious is there ever any um, engagement with industry in that in the way that um, i mean this is a not not really a certification scheme but a guide but an engagement with industry where you know industries that are fisheries that are listed as perhaps not as good choices are keen to become better choices. Is, is there any is there any of that going on when you're um, working, working through this guide?
5: Look, it happens all the time. Uh, suffice to say, we don't have uh, any uh, niggle or, or problems with industry that are the fisheries that are already on our green list, but we're always talking to fisheries that want to know if they can improve their ranking um, and their rating from us. Um, what can they do? And, you know, the great news is that uh, a whole bunch of them um, take those opportunities. And, look, the only reason they do it is because um, they're hearing from consumers or people selling their fish that uh, those consumers are, are choosing something else based on sustainability and, that, and you know, they, they want a piece of that action. So... Yeah, look, it does happen all the time. And, and we always make sure when we're talking with industry that they know um, exactly why um, we rate them uh, as sustainable or otherwise. Um, the difference between us and, say, some of the certification systems that are out there, so you might see a, a, sort of a blue tick or something on seafood telling you that it's sustainable, or a government might be... Um, uh, classifying a fishery as sustainable is that uh, we don't have any skin in the game. There's no, there's no money involved uh, that comes from uh, fishing or fish farming industries or governments for that matter. Um, and our program is driven by the consumer wanting to know, wanting to get a bit of a sort of environmental scorecard of all their choices out there rather than a fisher. Um, uh, going to a certification scheme to say, "Hey, I want to uh, um, join this party and go through this process." So, so we're a little different in that regard. Um, but uh, our, uh, you know, the thing most important to us is our trust. So that that is our currency, and uh, and we take that pretty seriously.
4: Mm-hmm. I'm curious because this is something that comes up in environmental debates all the time. This is a very consumer-focused process and you're saying that, you know, fisheries want to improve their acts because this is what consumers are telling them. What is the role, how big a role do consumers have, how big a role do individuals have in improving the state of uh, the problems of fishing?
5: yeah well, look from one point of from one point of view I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that the consumer shouldn't have to drive this demand, that um, it should be seen as the job of industry and and regulators to to do that, but um, sometimes it falls short. and um, consumers buying choices um, we have a restaurant programme with around about one hundred chef partners now which will only serve uh, sustainable seafood recommended by us. And, uh, the influence of that is becoming quite clear. And, and that's a really good thing. And look, uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's our mission to, to drive change and have fisheries be more sustainable and reduce their impacts on our precious oceans. So, um, we, we will do whatever the most powerful path for that is. And look, our, our sustainable seafood program is a really, really important part of that, which, I think reflects that consumers and their choices are highly influential.
4: All right, Adrian. Where can people go to find more information about all of this?
5: Yeah, thanks, James. Um, look, I've been I've been spooking our guide, but uh, you know, with eighteen months of work ahead of me, why wouldn't I? <laughs> uh, uh, you c- you can find uh, the Good Fish Sustainable Seafood Guide as well as. Um, Directions to a, a chef or a restaurant serving sustainable seafood at uh, goodfish.org.au. We have a website service and we have a free app available as well on the respective uh, uh, Apple and Google app stores that uh, you can download. Um, and uh, yes, we hope it's a hope hope it's a useful service. But we we're always fielding uh, inquiries from. Uh, consumers are now supporters and so we're happy to do that as well.
4: That was Adrian Meader from the Australian Marine Conservation Society talking about The Good Fish Guide.
1: And this next track is by Leah Flanagan. It's been a real favourite here at 3CR. Colour by Number by the album of the same name released last year. Flanagan there with Colour By Number.
7: That was James from Out of the Blue there with a discussion on the Tasmanian salmon industry and some of the environmental impacts on the ocean ecosystems. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Jacob here for your Monday morning.
1: I'm Kutcher Edwards. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates in Victorian prisons. We started in 2002, and this year marks 20 years on the air. Be sure to tune in at 11am each morning from Monday, July the 5th to Friday, July the 9th for Beyond the Bars 2021 broadcast. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Thoughts within, visions
8: I see, daring to dream my destiny.
1: Online and nationwide right across Australia from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival's Documentary Month showcases the best local and international documentaries. Check out the incredible lineup at mdff.org.au, cinemanova.com.au and watch.eventive.org forward slash mdff and book your tickets and streams today. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter.
7: Good morning, you're on 3CR. Up next, Fung speaks with Lauren Colosimo from Channel 31 about the recent vote in the House of Representatives last week, which saw their licence extended until 2024, and also a brief discussion about the importance of community television.
2: So you're tuned into 3CR Breakfast. In year 11, this is going back quite a few years ago, I remember coming home from school most days, and turning on the TV to watch 1700 on Channel 31. And I remember enjoying the community aspect of the show and discovering local bands. Until very recently, Channel 31, as well as Channel 44 in Adelaide, Australia's only remaining community television station, had been told they had to stop broadcasting after June 30 and switch to an online-only model. However, a vote in the House of Representatives last Wednesday saw their licence extended until 2024. Lauren Colosimo joins us on the show this morning um, from Channel 31 to talk, uh, talk to us about this incredible result and the importance of community television. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Lauren. Hi, thanks for having me. Um so can you tell us about um, uh, what it's been like at channel thirty one these last few years having had to um, wait until the last minute to to um, uh, have the license extended for another twelve months what's that been like for everyone?
0: yeah it's um, certainly been a pretty unstable time uh, so I've been a staff member with the station since about February last year but um, long time volunteer and freelancer. I also got my start on 1700 in uni. Oh, great. Um, so yeah, very, very, um, show, show this very close to my heart. Uh, but with the short term extensions, it does make it very difficult to really do, do any long term planning or, or, or make any real impactful change because we're always just kind of looking to get to the next, uh, um, extension and, and to, to make that campaign again, um, but with the three years now that's really a huge uh, weight off our shoulders. It means that we can make some yeah real changes or or put in some real long term plans
2: yeah, definitely I mean I can't imagine you know every year you're planning your programs uh, you're looking. You can't really look ahead to the future, can you? Because the the future is so uncertain. So so three years is is um, is an amazing um, achievement. Um, how did this all um, where did this all begin um, with the decision to switch to an online only model?
0: Yeah, uh, look, I think it started back in 2014 um, when Malcolm mm-hmm. Campbell was communications minister. And we're still not really sure why that decision was made. Um, we aren't funded by the federal government. Uh, we're pretty, pretty self-funded through ads from local businesses and um, grants and other things, Um and the, state, the, the frequency isn't going to be used for anything else, so I think I mean that's all been said in many times before. Um, so yeah, we're not really sure why that decision was made, uh, but it was made a long time ago, and it's been continuing for the last seven years. So really glad that we get a, a yeah. break from that now.
2: <laughs> Definitely. Um, so you say you've um, you've um, worked um, uh, at Channel 31 since uh, early last year, but you've been volunteering and and been a freelancer there for a really long time um what are some of the shows that you've worked on and, and what does community television mean to you personally yes
0: it look it means a lot to me like i said first show i volunteered on and and uh, first the sort of paid work i got was 331 um so like i said 1700 is really close to my heart and i i still uh liaise with the the 1700 crew once a for fortnight when they come in, and I'm really glad to just see that still going on. Um, I also worked on a lot of live, uh, sports broadcasts, mm. so the local, local, uh, football finals and grand finals, um, the lots of in-house, in-studio sort of talk shows that we did, uh, a few years ago, um, and currently, I'm overseeing the production of most of our in-house content, our docu-series, which we've got a suite of five uh, brand new series that are been released weekly at the moment. Yeah, that sounds... And so, like... Oh, sorry, continue, yeah. please. <laughs> no, that's all right. And I mean, what, that's what it means to me. It's been an opportunity for me to, to be part of the industry and to, to make creative content. But I guess what it means to the community, the wider community, is a lot more as well. Um, definitely, similarly for media professionals, it's, it's an opportunity for, for them to experience the industry and probably the only way that you can kind of experience um, these roles as an entry-level media professional. Um, but for the wider community, we are definitely been a, a voice for underrepresented um, people and and things that aren't represented on mainstream TV. And one thing we're really proud of, particularly during the, the lockdown, is we've been able to air weekly religious services. Mm. Um for a number of religions and the people that follow across Melbourne. So that's something that people have been really thankful for when they haven't been able to get out to to worship with their community. They've still been able to turn to Thirty One.
2: Yeah, um, I think, you know, sometimes people uh, regard TV or television as, as um, you know, something that you do on your own. You know, you're watching it in your own homes, and but, but something about community television is... is that it's quite special in bringing people together. And and that sounds incredible that you were able to reach out to the community in such an important way, uh, in such a meaningful way um, last year during lockdown. Um, have you heard from the community, from the wider community, about um, this uh, three-year extension? Um, have you been able to celebrate with them? I know it's been only like a week since you <laughs> received the news, but, yeah, what have you heard from your viewers? Yeah, definitely. Our community is amazing and
0: they're so, um, vocal. You know, we often get calls, like I'll come into the office and, um, have quite a few messages on our answering machine of people just saying, so glad that you're still around.
9: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, you know, messages on, on our social media and all of that. So I'd, yeah, I'd really love to thank our community for just being so supportive and, uh, for calling up and seeing how they could help or sending us messages and seeing how they could help. Uh, definitely, I think everybody's, love and um, support for the station is what has kept it going for so long um, and made it get through, get this amendment passed. Um, in terms of celebrating, we are looking toward to the Antenna Awards, which is our sort of semi-regular award show to celebrate the content on both our station and Adelaide 44. So that's mm. happening in on September 18th now. So that'll be a good opportunity for us to celebrate with all of our producers.
2: in real life? Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, fingers crossed that you'll be able to, um, yeah, come together and and celebrate um, the channel and and the long history of of community television, um, uh, especially in Melbourne and Geelong, um, but also for Adelaide as well. Um, I think, you know, here at 3CR... We always talk about the importance of of community radio and and, and how um, like you were saying, we prioritize voices of, of those who are underrepresented and also discriminate against in mainstream media um, and in return, we get so much love and support from the wider community to help keep us on air and I imagine that is very much the same for community television um, mm-hmm. uh, especially you know when we 've got an increase of, um, like, streaming services and, and um, yeah, things like Netflix and, and YouTube and all those other things. I think it's still important to remember that a lot of people do love and rely on community-led and run media for not just news but for entertainment.
0: Yeah, certainly. And, and there still are quite a lot of people who aren't digitally literate. Mm-hmm. And we did learn that in particularly in the last um, not this year switch off but the 2020 switch off when uh, we you know in the midst of a pandemic um, quite a lot of our senior our audience is a senior audience and they're they're not ready to move to online so that was a pretty scary time for them, thinking they would lose access to to their shows or to their you know news outlet so um yeah, it's definitely a supplement to online of course we all love using online mm-hmm. and it's the way we're going but it it's still a vital um
2: Medium totally definitely um, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show um, this morning, Lauren um, and for our listeners out there uh, I'm sure there are many people out there who have been a long time fan of channel thirty one or or perhaps if you're new to the channel, please uh, tune in and and support community television. Thank you so much Lauren so that was Lauren Colosimo from Uh, Channel 31 speaking to us about some of the challenges that the station has faced in recent years due to um, Malcolm Turnbull's decision to move to online only back in uh, 2014. So it's great to hear that both Channel 31 here in Melbourne and Geelong and also Channel 44 in Adelaide have been granted a three-year extension because, yeah, it really does provide um, uh, a lot for for the community and, as Lauren was saying, provide people who are interested in working in the media with uh, an entry point into that profession.
8: Great. So we're just going to go to a quick announcement and then we'll be right back.
1: Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, IPAN, has launched a National People's Inquiry into the costs and consequences of Australia's involvement in the US-led wars, the US alliance and its alternatives. The inquiry aims to promote a national conversation and is currently inviting submissions from organisations and individuals. The great majority of Australians have never been asked about this alliance, its implications and its limitations which has led to an uncritical foreign policy it's time this changed to make a submission go to independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au that's independentpeacefulaustralia.com.au submissions close on the 31st of july ipan is a3cr supporter oh,
9: good job, yo.
10: or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
7: Good morning. You're on 3CR. Um, if you were listening to that, I do apologize. Unfortunately, our computer did not want to play. The wait is over. So instead, we brought to you Know Your Rights by The Clash. Um, and up next, we are hearing a segment. George Kanjere speaks to Priya to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from aggressive redevelopment proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority.
10: You're listening to Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and I'm about to speak with George Cangiere, who represents the newly formed Save Preston Market Action Group. And George joins us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from aggressive redevelopment that's being proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. So good morning, George. Thanks for joining us.
11: Hi, Priya. Thanks for having me.
10: Yeah, no worries. Um, so could you start out by telling us a bit about the history and significance of Preston Market to the local community?
11: Yeah, so Preston Market's about 50 years old in the middle of Preston. Um, I, I imagine a lot of your viewers would have already been there, but it's it's a really uh, big open-air market. People sell lots of fruit and vegetables and things um, and, you know, fresh meat and fish and things like that. Um, and it's just a really um, – it's an amazing – Place which really represents the sort of, uh, the, the working class history and migrant history of the northern suburbs. Um, and it still represents that. Like, it's an amazing place to go and just, um, and just, uh, you know, experience and, and hang out. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's very important for the, uh, in terms of like the affordability of the food is another very important thing about it. It's, uh, the prices at the market are, you know, they're pretty amazing.
10: Yeah. I mean, I think and, like, it's it's hard to it's hard to undersell Preston Market. As, as somebody who also lives in the local area, Preston Market is awesome, um, and it yeah. is just such a such a hub as well for connection um, in the community, especially for older folks who who go shopping in the yeah. market too.
11: Absolutely, it's it's really you can see that it's sort of this um, important place for people just in terms of just yeah like somewhere to go. Absolutely.
10: Yeah. So um, when was this redevelopment of the area first proposed, and what is being planned for the market site by the Victorian Planning Authority?
11: Yeah. So um, the redevelopment's been on the cards for um, quite some time. Um, because the site uh, is privately owned, so the, the entire time that the Preston Market's been there, the site itself has been privately owned, but the market has grown into this sort of um, uh, organic sort of community, the core of the area, basically. Um, but they've in the past few years, uh, Salta, which is the, um, the corporation which um, wants to redevelop the market, presented a new... About five years ago, they presented a plan which included, um, 28 story, uh, high rises and things like that. So, just things which, if any, if, if, for anyone who doesn't know, Preston's actually a very flat area. Mm. Um, if you had a 28 story high rise in the middle of Preston, that it, it would literally look like a, it would just be such an incredible eyesore and change to the whole thing. And, um, Since then, there's been a bit of a dispute. The Save the the Preston um, Market Group, uh, a sort of a uh, version of it, was there at at that time to Mm -hmm. sort of oppose that sort of thing. And then um, as the the Victorian Planning Authority's plans have started to come out for the site, uh, the group has sort of reformed to to contest what's planned now. What's planned now is... um, at least 3 multi-story buildings the tallest of which is going to be 20 stories and they're going to knock down up to 80% of the market um and retain some pardon me retain some um token sort of area of the market essentially uh but largely just redevelop the entire area with um 2000 new apartments and up to 6000 new re- residents
10: yeah i mean this is a this is yeah. a massive proposed change you know um yeah there, there's definitely, I guess, like a need for appreciation of the, the scale of this transformation. Um, and I'm wondering what the response has been from community members, because I also understand that the Darabin Council has undertaken stakeholder engagement to prepare a report on community views on the market and plan redevelopment, which is called the heart of Preston. Um, and so to what extent has the VPA actually taken priorities outlined within that report into account?
11: Yeah, so they've been. I mean, it's not surprising. They've been very sort of um, silk tongued, basically, in their, the way that they've they've uh, taken on board people's wish for the you know for the preservation of the market. Um, so the the council the council's um, current position is that the market should be um, sort of uh, retained um, as it is, essentially, as a sort of very important historical and cultural kind of place um, but uh, the VPA is essentially saying oh well we're going to knock down most of it and we'll sort of we'll keep this area we'll rebuild some of it but it's all really just um it's all really just window dressing and the, the consultation processes are I mean really they they're a process in manufacturing consent because they don't sit down and ask the community what should we do with this the, the heart of our community. What should we do to make it better? They sit down and say, right, we're going to redevelop the area. And so what would you like us to possibly include? And then mm. they report that as the community saying, oh, the community said they wanted this and that. The community has never really asked what we want to happen, um, with Preston Market. We're just asked, um, for some sort of fringe suggestions, uh, which, uh, you know, just only, you know, they're just marginal to the essential thing, which is that this corporation stands to make, you know, approximately a billion dollars, we've calculated, mm. out of this redevelopment. Yeah.
10: Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, um, from from having a a very brief read of the VPA document as well and also um, the Heart of Preston um, report, it seems like uh, there's been a sort of selective uptake of the sentiment of the Heart of Preston report without actually also taking into account the practical concerns around the physical space. Um, So, you know, we need to retain some sort of community space, but the nature of that space can obviously vary drastically.
11: Absolutely. And it also doesn't consider that this, whatever happens, however, however sort of tastely they decide to knock down Preston Market and, uh, you know, and rebuild some of it or whatever, um, this is going to have a massive impact on the, just the general process of gentrification in the area.
9: Mm-hmm. Because
11: once this happens, um, you know, when you're in the area, you can really see that this market sort of is a very key kind of... Um, Aspect to holding the area together, and once that's made into a multi-story sort of um, area, with I think they're proposing things like cinemas there, and um, you know, it's just going to be uh, it's going to change the whole area uh, irrevocably, and it'll change things for well, not only residents who because. Um, I, I can't imagine that the, the sort of the conditions on the prices of the market are going to mm. remain the same. Um, you know, the price of food is going to go up. Probably the uh, you know rent of nearby shops is probably going to go up. You mm. know, as, as, you know, the, the general process of gentrification I think is going to really kick off.
10: Yeah, I mean, we don't need cinemas there. We got Northland mate, but um. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Exactly. Um, So we need to um, wrap up in a moment, but um, could you just um, take us through uh, where people can find out more and support this fight to save Preston Market?
11: Yes. So, yeah. um we're um, part of the Save the Preston Market Action Group you can go and find us at um www.savetheprestonmarket.com and put your details down um, we're a group which is saying absolutely not to the destruction of the Preston Market and we are demanding that the um, the council work with the state government to compulsorily acquire the site because that's the only way that this um, you know this fundamental community area is going to be protected um and we will really have to fight hard for it, um, just like people have had to fight hard for other things, like Pre- Victoria Market, for instance, in the past.
10: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for for the work that you and others are doing to save the Preston Market. Um, we support your fight and encourage people to go uh, to Save the Preston Market Action Group's page um, and find out more, figure out what you can do. So thank you so much, Absolutely. George.
11: Thanks so much, Bria. Thanks for having me.
10: And that was a conversation with George Cangere, who is a member of Save Preston Market Action Group. And George joined us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from pretty aggressive redevelopment plans proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority.
13: everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved
2: in.
0: For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter.
4: Every Tuesday at 9.30pm on 3CR, 8.55am, the Greek Resistance Bulletin brings you news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek, news from the anti-fascist and anti-racist front, and news from actions and political initiatives from below.
3: Κάθε τρίτη βράδυ, 9.30 με 10, στον 3CR 8.55 AM, η εκπομπή Greek Resistance Bulletin σα παρουσιάζει στα ελληνικά και τα αγγλικά, νέα από την Ελλάδα των κινημάτων, νέα από το αντιφασιστικό μέτωπο, νέα για τις δράσεις και τα εγχειρήματα από τα κάτω. Greek Resistance Bulletin, σπάζοντας το μονοπόλιο της ενημέρωσης.
1: Accent to women.
12: It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every
0: aspect of women's lives.
1: Accent to women. What's a border? They don't see it like a
12: big
0: wall right along the... How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where, too, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives?
1: Accent to women a show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. on Community Radio 3CR.
10: 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2021.
13: The union movement stands in solidarity with students and all young people taking action today. And we stand in solidarity with you for two reasons. Firstly, because we believe in the rights of young people to have a say in our democracy. Do not let the conservative media try to silence you. Be loud and proud, as we know in the union movement, when we raise our voices together, we cannot be silenced. Secondly, we stand in solidarity as your struggle is our struggle too. Climate change is union business.
1: 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio.
6: To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at
2: 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Um, It's Nadal week this week, and so it's time for 3CR's iconic Beyond the Bars broadcast. Um, it's been uh, it's been running for 20 years now, um, and this week uh, 3CR will be bringing you um, stories and interviews uh, from uh, inmates from various um, locations. So tune in. Um, we've got uh, some broad uh, some. Things happening today are uh, from 11 to 2 p.m. So make sure you tune in to 3CR, that's 8 by 5 a.m., or go to 3cr.org.au slash Um We're going to play a few things from uh, NAIDOC uh, broadcasts uh, from previous years. Um, so have a listen.
14: I am sick of the life I live. I steal everything, but all I want to do is give. It's not who I want to be, it's not the future I want to see. I think of my daughter and a tear comes to my eye. I think of her more and all I want to do is cry. But I stay strong in this place because I can't lose face. I'm going to be there, show Aisha that I care. I think I will give Aisha what she needs. While I steal money and give toys, Aisha's heart bleeds. All Aisha wants is my time. Is that anything of a crime? Aisha is as, as beautiful as a dove and all she wants is my love. I'm going to develop and be a better man. I'm going to do it, get out of this can. I will be there for her, because fatherhood is no chore. It's a responsibility, which now I finally see. I'm sorry, my daughters, but now I'm finished with the courts. I will be a better man like I know I can. Then Aisha and me will always be, and that's the future I want to see. Yep. That's for my daughter, Aisha. I love you, my baby.
2: So that was a, um, poem that was recorded, um, inside, uh, during NAIDOC Week 2004 at, uh, both the Dame, we've got footage from, uh, or recordings from Dame Phyllis Frost Centre as well as Port Phillip Prison. Up next we've got Auntie Lynn's tribute.
6: She's, uh, an amazing woman. Uh, Auntie Lynn's been talking about easing troubled times, um, Aunty Lynn's been there for all of us girls, um, without a doubt. Uh, there's not a day go by where she's not running around the compound and, you know, perhaps would like to be home at 5 or 5.30 at 6 at night to cook tea, but sure enough, caught the 7, just before lockdown, <laughs> there's Aunty Lynn's little legs walling across the compound and uh, she's been helping one of the girls out down the back or something and, and running around just worrying about everybody else here, us women. And... Um, I know for a fact that at uh, my lowest levels and, and and the toughest times that I faced in, in in the last couple of years of of being in prison, um, without a doubt in my mind, there's there's no way known I would have survived or got through it if it wasn't for Aunty Lynn. Mm. Um, she's mm. been there for all the women, and my God, you've seen a few births too, haven't you, Aunty Lynn? You've, you've been there for the babies. And, <laughs> yep, certainly and, have. You know. Oh, Annie Annie Lynn, after a wrap-up like that,
12: I know it can be a bit hard to sort of find find words to to, to respond. Mm -hmm.
13: We do what we can to make it more comfortable for the ladies here and everything. So just the support, they need the support and everything. So, yeah, we do what we can and hope that we make it a little bit easier for them.
12: Well, just while we've got you here, because one of the the feedback that you, you know, when you're outside of this institution, you know, I hear um, that a lot of the women, you know, we are picking at the women here, but I'm sure, you know, the the men have got a different story that they can find that the the, the lack of, you know, support and to hear someone like you and some of the other um, Indigenous workers that are trying to make a difference, uh, you don't often hear about the, the, the the good people. No, that's
13: right. We... We have a lot of people that are trying to do the best they can inside and out mm. and everything and it's good to see that people are starting to stand up, especially communities, yeah. which is needed amongst male and female um, incarcerated people and everything, so it's very good that people are starting to take notice now.
12: Well, while you're there, I just want to get in the... <laughs> a talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, how do you... outside or even in here do you find time to daydream at all you know sometimes yeah it gets pretty hectic in here at times and everything
13: so you've got to take your time out somewhere along the line so yeah but i enjoy it working with the girls and everything they're a great bunch and um like i said we just try to support the best way we can
12: And a NAIDOC message to uh, here in Melbourne, over the borders to New South Wales, South Australia, right around the country. It's nice to know that the girls can say uh, welcome to their
13: families and and everything and to their friends and loved ones um, over the air. And um, I'd also like to wish everybody out there a happy NAIDOC, including male and female prisoners and everything, and I wish them all the best.
2: So that was um, Auntie Lynn's tribute from NaDOC Week 2004. Up next, we've got another piece from uh, 2004 NAIDOC Week. This is Sean's interview.
15: All right. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome to the microphone on this very special uh, day in NaDOC Week when we uh, uh, bring broadcasting and uh, radio t- to the uh, boys in the prison, the men in the prison, and I'd like to welcome to the microphone Sean Brabrook, who is the Curry officer out here at the prison. How are you going, Sean? Yeah, good, thanks, Gil. Yeah, um, just a bit of background on this um, special day that we actually do out here every year. Uh, it started around about three years ago.
16: Yeah, this is the third one now, eh, hey, Gil? Yep,
15: and um, how, how, do we, how did we actually... I know it took a lot of work and a lot of talking and a lot of moving around to get this um, kind of broadcast happening especially inside a prison, a main prison here in Victoria. So um, tell us tell us what that to be done for us, because we're
16: just the uh, the people that sit behind the microphones here. Uh, You've got the important job, but <laughs> You're the hard <laughs> You're part. You're the voice, mate. You're the voice. That's it. Uh, but it, it does take a lot of work. Um, a lot of letters went backwards and forwards to the Commissioner's office in that first year, and um, there's sort of there's a protocol put in place now that we have to follow each year, and um, if fellas speak on the radio, they have to sign a protocol, and you know, Kutch actually come in this year and ran three workshops, so I know the big fella's on his way out here somewhere, so g'day Kutch. And, and some of the stuff that we've done
15: over the last couple of years, uh, we've had uh, some, some of the boys uh, actually sing, tell stories, uh, and, and a book that came out a, a couple of years ago, Sean, I haven't seen one since then, but...
16: Uh, I, I've still got that book at home, it's a great book actually Yeah, there's actually, there's, um, there's a couple of blackmail fro- floating around This year we never had a blackmail edition But um, the blackmail was comprised of a lot of poems and stories that fellas had written And things that had gone on through the prison Like programs we'd brought in and paintings and photos and all that sort of stuff So it is a good magazine and um, yeah, it's becoming a bit of a collector's item as well So It's the,
15: not only the only thing that's coming a collector's item out there uh, Sean, then the uh, great uh, NADOC t-shirts that um, the young here. Casey uh, painted, and um, the uh, other young Ray. Young Ray. Uh, young Ray. Mm. Uh, great, great t-shirts. Uh, we done a broadcast outside. Uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service yesterday on open day and uh myself and John we wore them T shirts and look uh, there wasn't I a, them right off there wasn't <laughs> a person that walked past us and said, Oh, where can we get one of them T shirts? I
16: said, You'd have to go to Port Phillip Prison to get one of them.
3: <laughs> Where's that?
16: Yeah everyone no one knows where this is, but everyone wants a T shirt, mate. Everyone wants it. So you either have to get a special invite or get locked up? (laughs) No. (laughs) Actually, I even had a phone call from the Aboriginal Advancement League. They wanted to know if they could buy the whole set, the whole five of them, to put on display up there. So (laughs) I think that's something that's really good. And, you know, it's starting to gather a bit of history behind it. Now, there's there's five T-shirts ran over five years. Um, There's four that I've been involved in and, and one that actually kicked it off just before I started work here. And, yeah, I think, I mean, if people can start putting them up, like in the Aboriginal Advancement League and places like that, I just think it's fantastic, and all the fellas in here, you see them walking around inside here with their T-shirts on. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just great to be able to celebrate the week and also give something back to the people that actually come in and um, mm. participate in the NADOC event, and to see them walking around with their T-shirts on in the community, it, it's great.
15: One of the highlights uh, I, I like about this special day in here, it's not only uh, do we come in here and broadcast uh, Australia-wide and get to talk to people, is the sports that happen in this place, uh, like the football teams that come in, the basketball teams. I mean, we haven't got a basketball team in here today, but it was good while it was happening. And like uh, John was saying earlier, it's, uh, this is a day that only happens once a year and we should be able to uh, make this day available for people that are in prisons.
6: Yeah,
16: and definitely for sure, and you know, sports is a big thing as well. Um, unfortunately, due to the drought that's happened, the, the football oval's in no condition, but I, I can put it to you now, all the fellas are down there in the gym now, and there's a basketball go- going on down there and a barbecue being cooked, and um, it's pretty full on down there at the moment. It sure is. There's, um, yeah. there's NADOC t-shirts against bare skins. So there you go I yeah, yeah, so actually right started off
15: in that game too, Shawnee You wasn't
16: there, but I started off for the first two minutes And I actually scored the first goal So I'm actually happy about that <laughs> Against all these fit blokes in here <laughs> But I, I, I'll take you back um, When we did have a football side come in um, Meadows brought a footy side in Bruns- I mean, M. Marillite, Brunswick Power brought their footy side in And geez, wasn't that a good game I was actually umpiring <laughs> And um, the Broadie fellas were up by a couple of goals Going into the last quarter Then they end up getting rolled by a couple of points and um, yeah. apparently the word was going round you fellas won't get out of here alive, if you? <laughs> well,
15: I, actually, I was actually
16: broadcasting on that specific day too
15: and um, uh, you being been an umpire, the, hard, the ground was that hard, so they, they tell me that you was even sore after the game. <laughs> oh, yeah,
16: for sure. Running around backwards and forwards there. And, yeah. Didn't yeah, pay so too many free kicks, a lot of play on, play on. <laughs>
2: So that was Sean's interview from NADOC Week 2004. We just heard some highlights from previous years. Um, We hope you can tune in today from 11 a.m. The NADOC Week broadcast can be heard on 3CR 855 a.m., 3CR digital or streaming live. Up next, it's over the wall.
17: This week on Over the Wall, we speak to VIMIAC, which is the peak Victorian organisation for people with a lived experience of mental health or emotional challenges, and we're going to talk today to Neil about the NDIS and how that's impacting people with mental health conditions and their experiences of NDIS. Neil Terton Lane, welcome to 3CR's Over the Wall, and Neil, you work at VIMIAC, And could you begin by please describing your advocacy work and role with VIMIAC in the community?
18: VIMIAC is a non-government organisation representing people with lived experience of mental illness or distress. And we work right across Victoria's health sector supporting people who are impacted by mental illness or their psychosocial disability and provide a couple of different types of advocacy to people. General and NDIS NDIS related advocacy, which focuses on NDIS appeals but also provides support to people who are encountering a hard time using the NDIS, having a hard time finding providers or want to make a complaint. Helping people with finding
17: the right service provider. Could you maybe give an example of type of work you've done there? some of the issues that you can assist or how you can assist people with getting a service
18: provider that suits their needs? I think the transition to the NDIS has been really difficult, particularly for people with a psychosocial disability, finding providers who understand and can work with people who have mental health challenges. And sometimes that causes a lot of conflict and misunderstanding and a whole lot of stuff going on there. We'll sit down with the person, we'll find out what's going on for them to explore what their options may be about maybe giving another worker or if that service is not cutting a mustard, looking elsewhere. Yeah, just encouraging people. The NDIS is about choice and control. People shouldn't be pushed around or feel that they don't have choices. very difficult for people, particularly in rural areas, where there are less services, there are a lot more services in metropolitan areas. The further out you go, the less choices people have. Hopefully, it's a problem that over time will be addressed. When new providers come in, you realise there is a market there. Yeah. The NDIS it's still a very immature scheme, and it's taken a lot longer for that kind of market side of things to actually to measure up. It's taken time to catch up with psychosocial needs
17: and supporting people with mental health and disability and things that people might encounter as difficulties with the system. Are there some examples you can think of that people have encountered as they've been assessed in the past or dealt with service providers that where the assessor assessment or the service provider has had a complete misconception about the person's needs or about mental health and living with a mental health condition?
18: There are a lot of services out there who want to provide minimal support and accrue maximum amount of hours from you. And that's not really in a person's interest. We often encounter people finding it's really hard to contact their service providers. Service providers aren't listening to them when they tell them they need specific support and disrespecting of people. And we hear that from providers when we talk to them really can't believe the way that they talk about their clients sometimes. You know, all those kind of things are hugely concerning, and the NEO is is trying to do something about it now. They've developed a recovery-orientated practice framework supporting providers and disability support workers to eventually get the right kind of training so they'll know how to respond to people and try to understand what's going on for an individual and, yeah.
17: What are some of the things in the development of a recovery-oriented framework with the
18: NDIS that
17: you think would be particularly helpful?
18: The key one is being able to respond to trauma and the way that trauma manifests in people's lives. Trauma makes people uncertain about how they'll be treated by people they don't know sometimes quite easily impacted by comments by other people, reinforces past experiences of trauma that people have had. So that continues to impact on people. And so a better understanding around what people's needs are and and what they might have been through. We're talking about people who have had poor, unfortunate childhoods or experiences throughout their lives, violence, abuse, you name it. You need to be able to kind of like meet a person where they are at. And if they're responding in a way that you're perhaps weren't expecting, maybe you realise it might be due to their trauma and, and the willingness to understand what that might be and what their real needs are if you're going to provide support. As a
17: past NDIS worker myself, I've thought about that a lot too because... One of the things which is there to protect people's confidentiality, as a worker, you don't know a lot about their case background and their condition. So going in as a worker, I've always felt it's very important to come from a complete trauma-informed care perspective, avoiding any topics that could be triggering, but also the way that we even approach the physical space with someone just always waiting for the person to lead with their cues, for them to be comfortable, not push people to do things. It's really about creating that safe space where the participant, the person themselves, feels that they're in control of the situation and if they want to reveal any information such as, I'm finding this really difficult because this is triggering for me, that's up to them. But as a worker, we can try and create a caring and safe space, yeah.
18: There is a tendency to want to help or fix people, but <laughs> fixing a lifetime of harm and challenges is not something anyone really can do, and it's not really what people want. But they do want to be listened to and understood, and unfortunately that doesn't happen too often. And with
17: recovery-orientated practice and work, It's about understanding that recovery is not always a linear, one-line, straight direction process towards recovery. There's times of setbacks, there's times of unwellness, which are also opportunities for increased learning and and increased understanding of support needs for people too.
18: Absolutely, and. A lifelong process, it's not something that happens quickly. Like people's lives may change, people will live with problems, and sometimes they'll surface more than others. Some people, it's certain times of the year. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. We do need to be able to support and understand you know, if they have a psychosocial disability and they're on the end, you ask, it's pretty well damn significant. You don't get onto the NDIS very easy. The people who do really have oh, quite severe, enduring, lasting disabilities caused by their illness and their and their trauma, and we need to be able to respect that and work with people and work at their pace, and be there to encourage them and be human and treat them like another person by validating people's experiences and. On a journey, as we all are, we're all on journeys. People are immensely brave and have overcome enormous obstacles in their life. Yeah. And that needs to be recognised and acknowledged. We spoke a bit about some difficulties with
17: services. Does that connect with the unfortunate stigma that comes around living with a mental illness? And stigma unfairly and untruly associates having a mental health condition as a person perhaps being less safe? and we hear those stories portrayed in the media when it creates that incorrect impression
18: Oh absolutely and I prefer the word discrimination because I feel that's what it is and you know I think stigma kind of like makes it seem like it's okay it's just because people don't know but you know we're talking about discrimination against people who are different it's just not people with a mental illness but You're right, there's a lot of media typecasting of people with a mental illness and promotion of stories about violence when the reality is that people with a mental illness are far more likely to be the victim of violence and often have been, and that's where their mental illness, their trauma has come from in the past through violence and abuse. And it connects back to that theme of the need for the person
17: for safety with the NDIS because they're allowing another person, perhaps from the start, you know, who they don't know at all, into their home or into their space to develop that trust with people when people are already dealing with past trauma and, and their health condition.
18: You're right. They're putting a lot on the line and sometimes they don't have a great deal of energy to give. That's why it's important that workers are able to understand and work in ways that people need. Yeah, otherwise it's not really a support, it's more hard work. And the NDIS way it's incredibly enabling on one level around choice. It also puts a lot of responsibility on participants as well. That needs to be recognised and not everyone can cope with that level of responsibility or they need support. Mentioning responsibility, are you thinking of things like
17: having to be always there at the same time each week or also some of the other things that are in their NDIS
18: contract. People talk about that a lot, about no-shows from workers or disrespectful behaviour by workers. They're always on their phone. That's a big one for me. I'd see
17: workers out with participants and like they might be in a cafe and the workers are sitting there on their phone. They're not being present with the person, and I think it's disrespectful.
18: Yeah, so currently the NDIS is really kind of promoting this idea that funding for the NDIS is going to blow out and there won't be enough money to support the scheme. That's a big narrative that's being pushed by the government, by ministers, by the NDIA itself. The reality we can see from cost estimates from the last budget is that spending for the NDIS is on track. The NDIS is doing what it's supposed to be doing it's actually providing support to people in very new ways that that were so badly needed. The idea of individualised support and people having supports that match their disabilities is really overdue.
2: Thanks to Peter from Over the Wall there. You can tune in to Over the Wall on Solidarity Breakfast each week. Thanks for your company this morning, but no thanks goes to the gremlins in the studio. Uh, tune in tomorrow to Tuesday Breakfast. Up next, we've got women on the line.
1: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at NIBs.org.au
0: Women on the Line produced at three CR acknowledges the people
1: of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from
0: which we broadcast. We pay respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty.